Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. My name is Tim Cronin. Hi, I'm John Simon. For this episode, John and I thought that we would talk about a case that we recently handled. This was a case involving severe burn injuries to two young kids at a church camp down in Florida. And when the case came to us, there were separate lawyers for each child, and they'd already settled with what seemed like the obvious most culpable defendants for a significant amount of money in the case. And we'd worked with one of these attorneys on a prior case, which had a very good result. And he called us to see if we were interested in getting involved with going after the parent entity of the church on a tough agency issue. That parent church was a Missouri entity. So we ended up getting involved, co-counseling, but representing both of the kids and filing another lawsuit on their behalf down in Tallahassee, Florida. The case ended up settling the day before jury selection was going to be again. The amount is not confidential, but the parties are. So we're just referring to the church entities involved generically for purposes of telling the story. We'll change a couple individual names. But our clients were a 10-year-old little boy. He was 10 years old at the time of the incident. He was 15 or 16 when we resolved the case beginning of this year. And then a 9-year-old little girl who also is 15 now, I think. On June 15th, 2016, they attended, along with, I think, 200 other children, a church camp near Tallahassee, Florida. Both of these families were members of an evangelical Pentecostal church. In fact, one of the biggest Pentecostal fellowships in the world, thousands and thousands of churches in the United States and more worldwide, I think over 70 million members worldwide. And the way the church is structured is there's individual churches run by pastors and their councils. We'll get into that a little bit later. Above them are regional districts, which have their own councils. And at the top is a general council. And the level of control of the higher organizations over the lower ones was really the central dispute in the case. That's yeah, what most it, of the depots right. ended up being It, it really became a case about agency, right. about agency and damages, I would say. And so the first thing we had to do is figure out, try to get an understanding of what the structure was of these churches, who had been settled with, and then take a look at the law, either in Missouri or Florida or elsewhere, to see if it was a, a viable claim that could be made. Johnny actually did all the research up front. We read it. In Missouri, it was like a no-go. There was a 30-year-old decision in Missouri that was terrible, and I was just under the assumption that if our court looked at that again, it wouldn't be the same result. It was going to throw it out. Right. It was one of those church molestation cases. You're not suing a top level of a church under an agency theory, I think, essentially. Right. The door was closed. There was just no way to pursue that claim under Missouri law. And so we started looking at other alternatives. So then the second place we looked after that was Florida where it happened, where the incident occurred. And then the question was, would we be able to stay in state court or end up being in federal court? And there was a question of whether we could keep in some other individual churches who I think our co-counsel in the prior settlement hadn't settled with, but the release language was kind of iffy of whether they were also released. And so we were worried for much of the case that they may try to slingshot us right at the end to federal court, but they didn't because we were able to hang on to the state entities long enough. And it was two cases. And one of them, the state entities stayed in, I think, the whole time, even though there wasn't much culpability. And the other one, we kept them in long enough that we were able to stay in state court. So this youth summer camp 
was being held by a district council of this denomination in West Florida at its campground, so the middle level of the church structure. The camp was put on by that Florida district council and staffed and paid by employees and volunteers from local individual churches, a lot of which were parents of the kids in attendance at the camp. Yeah, that became an issue later on that we needed to figure out how to deal with. Yep. Yeah. So the district's, again, middle level ministry director was acting director of the camp. He hired an ordained minister of the church who will call Pastor Ryan to be a presenter at the youth camp all three weeks of the camp. In the first week from June 6th to 10th, the pastor told everyone he'd be demonstrating a fire object lesson for the young campers doing a a Holy Spirit lesson. He testified he'd performed this same demonstration over 500 times at other events across the country. Here's the story of how he did it. Here's how he did it the first time, and then we'll get into exactly what happened the second time. He called it a fire object lesson. We used some different words occasionally, dangerous fire, spectacle, or demonstration. But it involved the pastor standing indoors on a stage, elevated a few feet from the ground in front of all the kids, where he filled an aluminum tray, like a cooking tray that you might make like brownies in, with 280 cotton balls soaked in highly flammable 91% isopropyl alcohol, which is rubbing alcohol. And then he lit the pyre ablaze. Once he lights the tray full of alcohol-soaked cotton balls, He invited the children to come closer within a few feet of the stage to watch the flames up close as he's preaching about the Holy Spirit and as he added more alcohol onto the open flame. Now, this pastor, John, how many times did we find out he said he'd done this before and then they tried to say it wasn't as Tim, it was all over the board. This guy ended up giving three depositions in the case, and the third one was the trial deposition. The first one was before we got involved, and and then you deposed him in the middle of the case. And he was all over the place on everything, and this was an important issue, how often and where he did it, because it was a notice issue for the top level of the church, and he was like all over the place. Whatever number you asked him, he wouldn't say whether it was two times or 2,000 times. So what we ended up doing is he originally was interviewed by the local Florida fire investigator, And this was within an hour or two or a couple hours after the incident, and he gave a recorded statement, which we had gotten copies of. And so pretty much for the trial depot, I went by what he said. Did you lie to the state? (laughs) Yeah, it was like I asked him, you know, how many times, and I was certain he was going to say what he did, and that is I don't know. What he told the state investigators right off the bat was he had done this, I think he said, way more than 500 times. So we knew definitely he'd performed the exact same demonstration in front of young campers age 7 to 12 on the first week of this camp. We knew that. And we had prior depots where he said it was a lot, but then there's corporate reps who were trying to claim they didn't know anything about it. But he does it the first week of this camp with no objections from any of the camp staff, the volunteers or the directors. The entire demonstration was recorded by the camp and posted online. So we had a video of it and you could hear it. That was key in this case. I mean, having it and actually we had both of them. The demonstration he did where no one was injured and then this one. So fast forward to June 15th. It's a different set of kids. The camps last a week, I think. So that was the first week. He does the demonstration. Now it's the second week. This is the week that our clients are now in attendance. On June 15th, the second week of the youth camp, the pastor who was there as a camp speaker again attempted to perform his fire object lesson, resulting in disastrous consequences. Again, all caught on video. There were 200 kids in attendance. He began his performance by explaining the fire was meant to represent the Holy Spirit 
and the strength of faith in a community. And this is one of those parts to where we were kind of walking a fine line throughout. We're trying to show that everything he's doing is in furtherance of the interests of the highest level of the church, but also not trying to be critical of their religious practices. Right. We didn't want to infringe on their ability to practice their beliefs and their religion. Because if we did that too much, we get thrown out. So what we ultimately did was take the position that if you want to do a demonstration like that, there are other ways to do it. Not having the kids to come up to, to the, the fire. I mean, obviously, right. that was the big obvious thing. Have a fire extinguisher um, right yeah, next to you. You could videotape it. You could have barricades. You could have them 20, 25 feet. So we weren't saying you can't do this as part of your religious practices or in order to demonstrate your beliefs. We wanted to stay away from that. And we did. That wasn't our position. Our position was you know, the way you did it was crazy. Yeah. So then he lights the aluminum tray filled with cotton balls soaked in the 91% isopropyl alcohol, producing a flame over two feet high. As he continued to preach to the campers, John, you took his depot and got into this in detail. Wasn't he like talking about how dangerous the fire was while he yeah, was walking Yeah, it was really around? crazy because before he even started the fire, he said, this is very dangerous and this is hazardous and we need to be very careful. And he told the kids, and there's 200 kids in this room, in this auditorium, he said specifically, you need to stay in your seats. And he told the parents or the volunteers there, make sure everyone stays in their seats. And he's walking around saying this, holding a fire extinguisher, explaining about how horribly dangerous this is and they need to stay away. And then literally within minutes later, he says, come, come up. up. To the right. And then he waits till they're up next within two feet. There was evidence in the case that yeah. several of the children were within two feet of the tray. And then he douses, like pours an entire bottle of isopropyl alcohol on an open flame and it literally explodes. I mean, it's there's crazy. a ball of fire and engulfs two of these he, kids. Yeah, he's saying it's dangerous. He invites all the young kids to get out of their seats and come stand closer to the stage. Groups of campers all stood and were guided up by parents and volunteers within a few feet of the stage. I don't know what the volunteers were thinking. And with the kids now pressed in around the stage and our clients front and center, the pastor noticed the flames were dying down. And so he asks an assistant to get him another bottle. And with him standing on one side of the fire and the kids on the other, he starts squirting and pouring the alcohol onto the open flame, not once, but twice. And on the second pour, an explosion blinded onlookers. It's on video and the whole screen just goes white. Right. Jets of liquid flame were launched out into the crowd of children. The flames directly struck our two clients who were front and center. Our 10-year-old little boy client, his body happened to be protecting his younger brother's body that was right behind him, who then watched his older brother burning alive. They were engulfed in flames for up to 30 seconds before the pastor could get the camp's fire extinguisher to work. Both had to be airlifted to Tallahassee Hospital. Shortly thereafter, both were transferred to a new facility. When the hospital concluded their burns were so severe, they lacked the expertise to treat the children. And then ultimately, they had to be taken to Boston, I think, to Shriners Hospital to treat their injuries. Yeah. They had to be at one of the best hospitals in the world in order to be properly treated. So since the explosion at that camp, both had to undergo a large number of skin graft procedures and then subsequent laser procedures, and they might have to have those continuing going forward, removing flesh from their thighs and buttocks to attempt to repair their chest and arms and neck. And the little boy actually had significant scarring on his face. Both sustained severe third-degree burn injuries over a huge portion of their bodies, all of which required extensive skin grafting. They have permanent scars over much of their bodies, which also restrict movement, cause irritation, swelling, pain daily, 
both obviously experienced significant trauma and ongoing mental anguish that caused them a great deal of trouble and continues to do so. So we had an act done by this pastor, which we thought was obviously insane and negligent. Tim, I think too, that issue, while they didn't admit to it, Nobody was leading the charge, yeah. saying that this wasn't crazy and negligent. They indicated right before trial they were going to admit he was negligent because yeah. they thought they could try to keep evidence out. Right. It was an issue of, look, what he did, he shouldn't have done, but we don't have anything but to do But we're not good it. for yeah, it. Yeah, we're not good for it. Right. We didn't know about it. And even if we knew about it, we couldn't do anything about it. So our clients had huge damages and life care plans done for both of them. Our issue was agency. Right. That was the highly contested issue. And then, you know, properly and convincingly putting on our damages case to try to get a fair award for our clients. But our issue was agency, getting the top level of the church on the hook because the initial lawyers had already settled with and released that individual pastor. His church, who he was technically employed by, which we'll get into that, the district that put on the camp and almost all of the other local churches that participated in the camp and had camp volunteers at the camp. And so all we had left was the top level of that church and an agency issue. Yeah. And, you know, we had, I think it was two claims. We had a direct negligence claim against the head church for notice, basically, that yes. they had seen this going on previously and should have done something to intervene. They were aware of it. So we had two direct negligence claims, but both required notice. So it was, yeah, generally they should have had better policies and procedures and knew this kind of thing was being done and should have intervened. And then pretty similar to it is the negligent hiring, retention, and supervision claim of the pastor specifically. And then obviously the agency claim. And then the, the agency claim. claim, we also had an ultra-hazardous activity claim going in. We had direct claims against them, and we had the agency claim. A lot was focused on the agency claim and the level of control that the top level of the church has over pastors generally and everyone else. And then on the direct negligence claims, notice was the main issue, right? So just kind of a reminder to get into that agency issue and what kind of notice they would have. As I said, this Pentecostal church is organized in a three-tiered system, and their whole argument was it's all bottom up. And that's based on their scriptural beliefs. That's the best way to organize your religion for whatever religious reasons they had based on scripture. The first thing we did was go straight to their constitution and bylaws, their governing documents to see what they said. And the top level council, the general council, is the church's chief executive body and responsible for selecting which churches may join the faith, who can be an ordained minister of the church, for disciplining ministers of the church, and enacting the bylaws and constitution that govern all the lower regional districts and churches. I think they also collect dues from all the ministers, right, John? Yeah, I mean, there was a bunch of stuff in the documents and the constitution and bylaws detailed description of qualifications, detailed description of credentialing, a very detailed process of what needs to be done for renewal. The yeah. big thing for us, the thing that was most helpful, I thought, was they also reserved the right to discipline individual pastors. And it was really detailed. And not I mean, just they, for their teaching, for their personal For their conduct. personal conduct. Yeah. They had, I don't know how many it was, A through N or O, of all of these specific things that could result in discipline. And one of them, I think the very first one is just general ethics and morality. Right. They also provided resources for educational programs for like youth camps, right? right. I and don't that think was, that it happened this time, but. You know, that was part of the general negligence claim on notice. 
the general negligence claims, I think, as you said, two, one is you knew about this and you should have prevented it from happening. Like globally, globally. like not let anybody do these and, things or do them more safely. And the other thing, although it was hiring, supervision, retention was the strongest in terms of the second general negligence right. claim of supervision, training, retention. Because, because they had of things some, in his past. Yeah, there were things that came up. We got through discovery that it actually not allowed his credentials to be renewed. Correct. And all some stuff went on. But, you know, we're arguing the pastor who did the fire demonstration was an agent of the highest level of the church. And even though he was not employed by that highest level. Yeah, and I'll tell you the other thing, too. I thought one of the biggest challenges on the agency issue was the second level. There was a mid-level. The district was between the individual pastor. That has its own constitution right. and bylaws, and they hired him for the camp. Yep. And the other thing, too, was even in matters of discipline, there were a lot of things in each of the constitutions where— It wasn't it, just the highest level. Right. had to be instituted, initiated at the district level. The recommendations came from the district level. So the final decision was made by the head of the church. The head. But based on the documents we saw, it went way beyond that in practice, I yeah. thought. Yeah, I felt so, too. So the agency question essentially came down to a question of right to control. That was the law in Florida. The essential question was, did they have the right to control? So we were arguing about church governance, essentially, which has First Amendment considerations. The defendants filed two motions for summary judgment and a writ on that issue, which delayed our case. We won them both, but they were promising us all the way up to the end that if this trial doesn't go well, we're going to the U.S. Supreme Court over the First Amendment issue if we succeeded at trial. So essentially, they were arguing we're not allowed to disagree with their own interpretation of their governing documents. Yeah, and you know what? The law was very clear in Florida. There was a case, an appellate case that was pretty much right on point. It was a Florida Supreme Court case right on point that said, well, it depends on whether it's an intra-church dispute between a church employee and the church or whether it's a third-party tort claim that you can just apply secular tort law. And there was one really good case that was good for us that says if it's not an intra-church dispute, if it's a third-party tort claim, it's not like some kind of employment claim, then this doctrine isn't as applicable. But there was a lot of cases from all over the country that were not great for us. I mean, if they got to the U.S. Supreme Court, you don't know how many cases they take. The current makeup I felt like it was an argument they would be susceptible to hearing and not in our favor. Yeah, and throughout the course of the depositions, the distinction between what we heard from the witnesses mostly was we didn't control, we weren't there, we wouldn't know what was going on. You're trying to change right. the fundamental nature of our church by saying we control the pastors. You hit it on the head, and the big distinction was it's not just control. Did they control his conduct, but did they have the right to control? Right. And the bottom line, the starting and ending point for us was they had the right to non-renew his credentials. You know, they had the right to basically fire him. They could defrock him. Exactly. So Correct. if somebody's got the right to dismiss you, I don't know what else you need. Obviously, it became a little more nuanced and detailed than that, but it was a great starting point. Yeah. Those constitution and bylaws of the top level of the church, they cover a wide variety of topics, including basic and specific qualifications of ministers, ministerial relations, Credentialing renewals, credentialing reinstatements, status changes, solicitation of funds, violation of ministerial courtesy, and then causes of disciplinary action like you mentioned. And I think most important was the stringent process by which a person becomes a credentialed minister or they can take away those credentials. And that's what we focused on a lot. I think there's a few levels, right, John? Obtaining first a ministerial license, then serving as a licensed minister for two years, 
meeting basic educational requirements, going through a criminal background check that they do, a credit score check, provision of references, administration of a doctrinal exam, and then that process is all required by the top level of the church, and then ultimately you can become an ordained minister. So, Tim, let me ask you this. I remember one of the arguments that they made, they kept refining them a little bit as the case progressed. And got different lawyers over time. And different lawyers would come in and, and, you know, add to it or switch it a little bit, but one of the the last one I think they ended up with was this whole idea of we're just a licensing organization. And Who did they, they compare themselves to? to the bar association? That's right. In other words, they said just like the bar association. And you know what? I thought it was one of the better of their arguments because they said the bar association doesn't have the right to control. Yeah. But and they have ultimate you know, authority they have over ultimate whether you authority. can be a lawyer in your state. And they can discipline you. Yeah, okay. I thought it was a pretty good yeah, argument. I thought it was a pretty good argument. It's a little different. Like, okay, you don't have ultimate authority about whether he can be a pastor generally or a minister generally, just for your church, right? right? And they had ultimate final authority as to who can and cannot become a minister. Cannot become one with that faith without the approval and action of that top level. And then once ordained, is authorized to perform the ordinances and ceremonies of the church. So, you know, the big battle through all of these depositions was going through the provisions of the Constitution, going through the provisions of the bylaws. But it was fairly clear that they had an incredible amount of control, specifically the right to control almost every aspect of this guy's conduct. So what happened through the middle of the case, actually, we were at his second deposition. It was the first deposition that we had taken, and we had asked for personnel file, any documents about hiring, firing, discipline. And so literally during the deposition, we get sent to us his personnel file. And it had been requested. It had not been given to us. And one of the other lawyers with us was actually paging through it as I'm asking questions in the deposition. And then we took a little break and we're looking at it. And we found some information that ended up being, I thought, some of the most helpful information we had in the case. We learned they had actually exercised this disciplinary authority over the pastor previously, right? When a different district council or individual church, I think it was both, recommended his credentials as a minister not be renewed based on reports of having issues of, I think it was like, quote, ethics, spiritual authority, lying, poor judgment, and then inappropriate contact with a minor over the internet, I believe it was. And the top level of the church made a decision to not renew his credentials, recommended he cease all contact with his local assembly. Didn't they even have a move out of the town? They said he had to move. So here they they are saying, well, we're just trying to portray it as just a rubber stamp. This all goes on. All of this discipline goes on at the district level. We just receive it and give it the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And I think they said never before have we disagreed with the ruling of a district. But here what we had was a file at the head church's office. And it wasn't just the final form with the thumbs up. It was like an 85-page file. It was, and it, had, it was huge. Right, it had all the different communications back and forth on a regular basis. It had information about they required him to undergo some type of counseling. And they were very detailed about the type of counseling, who was giving it, how it needed to be done. And the counseling records, literally the detail from all of the counseling notes had gone back to the head church. So they were like shoulder deep in this. They knew all about it. And that this was, was in 08, right? Right. And then... Two years later, what did they do? They reinstated him. And the other thing, too, that was helpful was they sent a letter back to the district. This is the head church sending a letter back, and they said something like, well, you know, we've looked at everything and we're willing to reinstate him, but the counseling wasn't an approved program that we need to approve, and therefore we're going to let it go this time, but next time make sure you do it the way we want you to do it. So there was like control and right to control all over the required rehabilitation plan, and he didn't follow it, and they let it slide that time. 
So it was that top level council and only that top level council that had the authority to make this pastor an ordained minister again. Well, we have a lot more we want to discuss about this case, but I think that's a good breaking point. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Jury Is Out. My name is Tim Cronin. This is John Simon. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.